Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. As a thought experiment, I would like you to picture God. What comes to your mind? My guess is that regardless of your own gender, you picture God as a man. And my guess is that regardless of your race, you picture God as white. An old white man, probably with a beard, maybe with a white robe. And I'd like to start our discussion of the book that we'll be discussing today with a quote from its pages. Quote, Everywhere we turn, there are pictures of God as a white male in churches, films, and everyday conversation. The prevalence of white male images of God easily leads us to conclude that God is definitively and exclusively white and male. And like many culture-shaping ideas, we don't even question the idea or how it shapes our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. For most of us, regardless of what we might want to believe or claim to believe, the image that immediately comes to mind when we imagine God is that of a powerful white man who is for and with powerful white men. It's a deceptive idea that flies under the radar, powerfully shaping us without our consent. End quote. Today we'll be discussing the book, God is a Black Woman, by Dr. Christina Cleveland. And I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Cleveland to the podcast today. Welcome, Christina. Mm, thank you. It's so great to be here. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. We were just discussing your book actually at the dinner table last night with my husband and my kids. And when I mentioned the title, he had seen me reading it, my husband had, but it had been a little while. And I said, yeah, we're recording about God as a black woman. And he just sat there and he said, wow, I just don't even realize how it has impacted my psyche to have grown up with a God that looked like me. Because when you say God is a black woman, my initial response, this is what he said, my initial response is, no, God is not a black woman. And I'm like, why do I think that? Because I think he's a white man. I'm just the title has an impact. It really does. So I'm grateful for your book and really excited to discuss it. I'd like to introduce just a little bit of your professional bio, and then I'll ask you to introduce yourself more personally. Dr. Christina Cleveland, PhD, is a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys toward liberation. So again, Christina, so excited to have you. And I'm wondering if you can introduce yourself to our listeners a little more personally, tell a little bit about where you're from and what led you to do the work that you do. Yeah, even as you asked those questions at the beginning of this conversation just a few minutes ago, you know, when you picture God, what do you picture first? And I'm someone who, like your husband and like I think so many people, is is healing from that image of that that scary white man, that distant white man, all powerful. I'm back, actually back in France in the land of the Madonnas as we speak. And yesterday I took the day off from work and took the train about an hour and a half south of where I am into the Cantal region, which if you've ever had French cheese, it's probably from that region. It's this beautiful mountainous region and um, hiked about an hour and a half out to this teeny tiny chapel to visit a black Madonna, an image of God who's black and female, because I need to be reminded of this truth that I'm sacred too. And that 
all of us can be found in the image of God. And so that's a big part of my work is healing from the way that I was raised. I was raised in a Black family. I'm African-American. My parents are African-American. But even in a lot of these Black church spaces, and then also some white church spaces that we were also involved in, the image of God was often this white man, either explicitly or implicitly. Sometimes there was the picture up on the stage or you know near the pulpit, but sometimes it more just had to do with the doctrines of patriarchy and white supremacy. It's like best, you know, patriarchy's BFF. Just a lot of linearity, a lot of obsession with certainty and tradition, a lot of hierarchy, and a lot of like implicit and explicit denigration of black and brown people and of women and uh, non-men. And so, yeah, I grew up in that little 80s girl and started awakening in my early 30s about 10 years ago and um, have been on a journey since then that led me here to France. And, you know, I started coming here in 2018 to visit these Black Madonnas, these like ancient, very uncommon statues of the Virgin Mary, although, oh, she's so much more than the Virgin Mary. And the Virgin Mary is so much more than the Virgin Mary. So that's a whole nother conversation. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I started coming here almost five years ago and I've been coming back every year that I could. You know, I, I couldn't come in 2020, but just because it feeds my soul to see these sacred images of Black women and to connect with the land and the people who have venerated them as sacred. And yeah, so <laughs> it's this is this is a huge part of my work. That, you know, liberation from sort of white patriarchal religious conditioning, but just more broadly, liberation from white supremacy. And how are my thoughts, emotions, and behaviors sort of, you know, unconsciously tied to these ideas that are anti-human? and hierarchical and preventing me from connecting with myself and with the earth and with the divine and with other people. And so it's a, it's a journey and it's an exploration and it's artistic and it's scientific and <laughs> it's a joy. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if we could dive in a little bit on that topic. Your book is so great um, for so many reasons, but one thing that I really enjoyed about it was that I was really able to get inside of your experience, which enabled me to have empathy and really feel what it felt like for you growing up. And I'm wondering if you can take us, take listeners who haven't read the book yet, and I do recommend that they buy this book and read it, but for listeners who haven't read it yet, tell us what it did feel like for you to grow up with that white male God, if there's an anecdote that you could share. Sure. Um, you know, I can share one of the first instances, one of my first sort of conscious encounters, or maybe semi-conscious, I was like five, <laughs> with white male God. That's what I call him in the book. White male God, all one word, all lowercase. I was a five-year-old, just graduated kindergarten and was at vacation Bible school, which is kind of like a summer camp that's like Sunday school all week. At evangelical white churches tend to run them, at least they did in the 80s. And I was there and my brother, my brother was there with me. We were the only black kids at the even at the at the vacation Bible school at this particular church in our nearby our home. And we were playing tetherball and we were really caught up in the game because we love tetherball, still love it. It's like a such a fun childhood memory. 
playing tetherball with my just gentle giant of a brother. And we must have missed the teachers that, you know, the teachers call to come in from our recess to come back, you know, go back to the Bible lessons, which is the heart of Vacation Bible School. And I guess I say we must have missed her call because we were both pretty obedient kids. And the next thing we heard was, get in here, you niggers. And we both stopped. And I remember the terror in my bones. I remember the wave of shame that passed through my body. And on a level, I think I stopped breathing. Like on a cellular level, I stopped breathing because something in my little black girl body knew that I was not welcome and that I wasn't safe in that space, even though I didn't know what that word meant. That was a new vocab word for me. It wasn't a word that was used in our home and I hadn't encountered it yet. And I had to go home and have my mom explain to me why I felt that lack of safety and that that shame. And I say that I stopped breathing at that point on a level because it wasn't until almost a little over 30 years later when I first started encountering images of the Black Madonna, you know, years before I even traveled to visit any of them in person, a wave of release came over my body. And it's the only It was like the reversal of that first wave of shame that coursed through my body. It took me back to that story. It took me back to that experience as a five-year-old. And I was able to recognize that what that teacher had taught me about God. When I say she taught me about God, because by treating me and my brother that way, she taught me who's sacred and who's not. And isn't that what God, like our concept of God is about, right? Who is sacred and who's not? And in our culture, white people are sacred and men are sacred. And you see that in whose testimony is valued and who gets voted into office and who is seen as leadership potential and material and whose life matters. And so I think of that as my first encounter with white male God. And um. You know, I wish I could say that was like the only time I've ever experienced white male God in our society. But, you know, as I grew up and as I started to see the much more subtle ways that white male God shows up, white male God typically does not show up in a white lady calling you the N-word. Usually it's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more alluring than that. But yeah, it was, it, it was, it felt like I was constantly on the run from myself and from God, because I always felt like I had to contort myself into something other than what I was in order to somehow please this God who wanted nothing to do with me and declared that I was not sacred and not part of the fold. And so, you know, you get these, I grew up in the Christian church and so you get these messages like, come boldly before my throne of grace and for God so loved the world, you know, the whole world, supposedly. So you get these explicit messages, but then you get these implicit ones saying, actually, you don't really belong and we don't really value you. And that, that was, that became ex- extremely, that sort of rose to the surface for me in a powerful way in 2012 when Trayvon Martin was shot and killed by George Zimmerman, 
And I saw how so many of the white Christians in my world who had called me sister and called me beloved and, you know, who I had, you know, served in their churches and volunteered for their programs and babysat for their kids and and donated to their, you know, missionary causes. You know, we were supposedly family. And all of a sudden, when there's like finally this national conversation about race, that explicitly shows that Black and white Americans do not see things the same way, do not experience the same world, they refused to enter into that conversation. They refused to see the humanity in Black people's experiences. Mm. And that was a huge wake-up call for me because I had devoted a lot of my life to that world and was even teaching in like a Christian college at the time. And so not just socially and spiritually, I was vocationally and sort of capitalistically tied to that world. (laughs) And so, yeah, just, you know, another example of here's white male God showing up, you know, these folks are theologically incapable of seeing the divinity in me. Hmm. They cannot. Yeah. I was really gutted reading about that in your book. And there's a quote that I want to read that really, it it was shocking and heartbreaking to me. It's by Frederick Douglass. And you, you talk about what you call, quote, slavery's white Christ. And Frederick Douglass wrote this in the 19th century. He wrote, quote, for all slaveholders with whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders are the worst. The religion of the South is a mere covering for the most horrid crimes, a justifier of the most appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under which the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of slaveholders find the strongest protection. End quote. That, as a person who grew up Christian myself, the the incongruity with what I perceived to have been Christ's message was just really, really distressing on a deep level. And it, and it was so awful to me to, to read in your book and to hear you just now talk about that deep betrayal that it would, that that kind of racism and hatred would happen in the space where you had hoped to, and I guess assumed that you would have been safest, right? As part of the family of God. It's just so... And you know, what's interesting though, is like, I think the deeper, to me, like the deeper betrayal is that sort of white patriarchal conditioning that didn't allow me to see the the betrayal, (laughs) Mm. right? So, so rather than, you know, looking at this situation and being like, this isn't right. The Jesus that I see in like the gospel of Mark is nothing like the Jesus on this like megachurch pastor's platform, right? Uh Like even though on some level, my body under um, felt that. And there were, like, I remember specific times in my life growing up as a child and a teenager and a young adult feeling this sense of dread or or like a lack of safety in these spaces every single time, rather than naming the space as unsafe, I did what the white patriarchy taught me to do, which is blame the victim. Right. And I named myself as wrong or unsafe or heretical or, you know, and so I then turned on myself and did more to whip myself into shape 
you know, I, I need, Christina, you need to be more like Christ. You need to turn the other cheek or you need to stop being so selfish or you're just deceived like women are. <laughs> you need to just repent, you know, and mm -hmm. submit. And it was, what was quite jarring was waking up to that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was mm -hmm. the earthquake of all earthquakes. Totally. <laughs> right. You know, where it's like, ah, yeah. so yeah. I mean, well, I, I could laugh about it in retrospect, but Right. <laughs> it wasn't something I was laughing about at the time. I was throwing things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder too, if you can talk about how that, cause you, you talk about in the book, you grew up in a black family and, and grew up going to church. How did that impact your parents? I'm still not quite sure how it's impacted them. I know what was maybe challenging for me was realizing that white patriarchy doesn't just exist in white spaces in the same way that patriarchy doesn't just exist in male spaces. Right. And I think there was a special grief that I had to undergo when I realized that I wasn't safe from white male God in my own Black home. But that was a really important grief to go through because what that then brought me to was the truth that I'm not safe from white male God in my own thinking. And, you know, I talk in the book a bit about how white male God's a shapeshifter. Like he can kind of move through and inhabit different spaces and institutions and people, and he doesn't always show up in people that look like Trump. Um, and that's kind of how he's effective and maintains the power that he has. So I think that was very that was a very powerful experience. I mean, a painful experience, but I, it, one, one that awakened me to just the reality of how white patriarchy works, that you can't exactly just blame one people group because we're all susceptible and we're all, we're all affected as humans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did get that sense in the book that you're, especially your dad, and I do appreciate the sophistication and nuance that you, with which you treat your parents, your your dad seemed to have have a lot of internalized um, white male God. Yeah, mm -hmm. correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, but there's just that self loathing that comes from living in a white supremacist society, and that he sometimes ended up perpetuating that and actually acting that out on you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, it was so powerful. I wrote, I think, about twenty thousand words about my dad that didn't go into the book. Hmm. in his story, because I really wanted to ground myself in his humanity before I shared the parts that did go into the book. And that was part of the plan. You know, I, I knew as I was writing those things, I, I knew they wouldn't go in the book because the book isn't about him. It's about me. But I think, you know, one of the gifts of starting to heal, I'm still very much on my journey, but starting to heal is wanting to be able to, I just think there's so much about white patriarchy that wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater and wants to see everything in black and white and wants to like colonize the moral high road. Right? You know? mm. And I think connecting with what I call the sacred black feminine has really inspired me to really to see, you know, here's how this person has been, here's kind of 
their perspective and what has happened to them, the the abuse that's happened to them and how that has is just been sort of passed on unintentionally, not to say that, you know, there isn't responsibility needed, but I love that. You know, I love that very different way of the feminine of wanting to hold everything, even when it's not easy to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That feels like a miracle to me. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's one episode in the book too, that I wanted to talk about And I'm going to kind of get into this episode by reading a quote from the book where you're talking about maleness. So we've talked about race a bit so far in the episode, and I want to kind of take the angle of God being a male God. You write, quote, though masculinity is intrinsically beautiful, it is designed to be in interdependent relationship with femininity. Characteristics that are often associated with masculinity, like assertiveness, independence, and agency, are healthiest when they are in partnership with characteristics that are often associated with femininity, like emotional expressiveness, interdependence, and nurturing. Like yin and yang, masculinity only works when it is influenced by femininity. In Christianity, we are left with a male God that is not only masculine, but masculine in a way that crushes femininity. We're left with a male God that is not at all influenced by femininity. And so as I was thinking about this really lopsided um, God, the the question that I have for you and leading into this episode is, what effect does it have on men to worship a, a male God who has no feminine counterpart within Christianity? And as I'm thinking about, you know, toxic masculinity and men who exhibit a lot of sexism, partly just because it's modeled for them and they're not even aware sometimes. My question for you is how that impacted you. And I'm particularly thinking of the passage where you were trying to deal with all the trauma in your body by making a list of all of the white men who had oppressed you throughout your life. Mm-hmm. Did you talk about that, that? so long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I spent five months creating that list and working through that list. Cause I think there were like over 400 names on the list of just people that I could remember. And yeah, I mean, I think what, when I think of sort of that patriarchy, it just, it just shows up in a lot of petulance, like a lot of extremely weak men, extremely weak people, you know, who can't handle opinions that are different than their own, can't be present to uncertainty and pain, don't know how to empathize. And so a lot of my encounters with these white men were due to my work in the church where I was kind of like a vanguard uh, or a spokesperson of racial reconciliation in like the early 2010s. And I was speaking all over the country and big conferences and important boardrooms and that sort of stuff within the Christian church. And I would, you know, bring up statistics and data and research and reflections and, you know, perspectives on scripture and would just get clobbered, like just, you know, shooting the messenger. And so what strikes me about that is the inability to just be with something that's uncomfortable. 
like <laughs> to not even be able to consider it. And I remember in between my first book and this book, God is a Black Woman, I wrote a book called Power Trip. And when my agent and I were um, shopping it to different publishers, we had a few different meetings. And in one of the meetings, the white male publisher was there with several members of his team because they were seriously considering this book. And there were younger members of his team who were like women and or people of color who are excited about the book and wanted, the, wanted to offer me a big book deal, but they had to go through this, their boss, right? So he was at the meeting too. And he was clearly triggered by my book proposal. <laughs> and so he was just, he just came out guns a blazing huh. at me. And the entire like 25 minute meeting was just him cutting me down and cutting my credentials down and cutting like that, my proposal down and all this stuff. And afterwards, my agent, after we got off the phone, my agent called me and said, I have, in my 17 years as an agent, I have never seen anyone talk to anyone like that before. How are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm fine. That's like a Tuesday in my life. Like, this is what I deal with every single day. Now, not surprisingly, a year later, my digestive system completely shut down <laughs> because my life was indigestible and I was carrying so much trauma, but that's just how I was treated every single day. And so, you know, I think what this, what this white male God does is make, is white male God is violent, white male God rules with like an iron fist white male god is like an, is like easily threatened constantly has to make displays of his power you know I, you know I, I share in the book about this sort of like scarlet letter experience where this young girl was brought before our entire congregation because she had you know gotten pregnant and she wasn't married very you know these displays of power and domination and so then that's that's what people are taught to do is to be violent in that way and yeah it's just it's it's really powerful it's it's you know it's it kind of goes back to the point of ideas matter they shape us even if we don't know that that we're being shaped by them another thing that's that's striking too is like i just remember you know you saying at the beginning of this conversation my husband was reminded of the title of the book and it's like it's and I correct me if I'm wrong but it's almost like he had a reaction right like mm -hmm. oh like I feel something in my body <laughs> when I hear that that's one thing right but then like to be able to go straight to judgment versus curiosity which it sounds like your husband went a little bit more towards curiosity you know but like I think page that sort of patriarchal conditioning just goes straight to judgment yeah and shutting it down um, because we all feel things all the time, right? And but how we respond to it, um, and and that's 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 like a. I mean, I'm an Enneagram one. I don't know if you know the Enneagram, but you know, I can tend to go towards judgment rather than curiosity too. And it's been helpful for me to notice, like that's white, that's white male God, like that's all that is, and I can release that because that's that that way of relating to the world hasn't healed anybody ever. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Noticing those assumptions coming up or that, that certainty in dogma and saying, well, that's not right. And then meeting that thought with, huh, that's interesting that I responded that way. I wonder what the conditioning is in my own mind and my own body that makes me think that I know that that's not true or that I know that that is true. I, and to push and interrogate our assumptions, I think is 
that's the goal. I, I totally agree. I mean, we've all received conditioning. We've been breathing in the air (laughs) of our environment. Right. And so it's what we do with that. Once we become aware of it, I think that's where, where we can make change and reteach ourselves, hopefully. So my next questions are going to be about healing after all of this trauma that you really accumulated throughout your life and then had this kind of epiphany. One of the moments that I'd love to start with that I thought was so beautiful and memorable from the book was after a long time of kind of, I'll just say, I guess, a complicated and fraught relationship with your own body, which I think a lot of women probably of all races, especially in American culture, can relate to, but especially an African-American body in a white supremacist society. Just the kind of the difficult relationship that you had with your own body with binging and restricting and over-exercising. And, but you, you write this beautiful passage, if you don't mind, I'm going to read it, that you, I believe you were looking in a mirror and you looked at your own black female body and you, you said, quote, she had been with me all along, affirming, sustaining, and supporting me in the form of my own body. Through all of my failed attempts to win validation from white male God and his minions, she had been there all along, keeping me alive and sticking by my side. It just makes me choke up even to read it. Can you tell us about that a little bit? (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for reading that passage. It was wonderful to be reminded of it. Yeah. So one of the things that white male God taught me through society and through religious conditioning was that my body needed to be whipped into shape, that my body was unlovable, and that the only way that I could potentially experience any of the love that's available to other people is by looking as much like a white girl, a skinny white girl as possible. And so I, you know, from about, I think I first started binging and restricting when I was like six or so, all the way through my mid thirties, I just had this like really violent relationship to my body and to food. And the process of recovery for me really began with re reclaiming my understanding of the divine. I knew that I needed a so-called higher power that I could rely on in my recovery from food and body shame because I had tried everything and nothing was working. But I also knew that I couldn't trust this like God that I had inherited from my spiritual community. And so that felt like a really powerful affirmation that I could in fact discover and describe the God of my own understanding. Coming from my background, that felt heretical. Like, am I allowed to do this? (laughs) You know, because I, religion had always been top down and the, 
the sacredness of my own interpretation and experience was never propped up and seen as valuable and worth following. But through encountering the sacred Black feminine, through encountering these sacred Black images of the Black and female images of the divine, I came to see myself as sacred and came to see my body as as part of that sacredness and an ally (laughs) and worthy and beautiful and lovable in a way that like I had been longing for my whole life, just my whole life. And um, now sometimes I look in the mirror and it's so funny because, you know, I'm 42 now. I have some gray hair. I look, you know, I look like I'm for, you know, I look middle-aged and I just look in the mirror and I'm like, gosh, you're so beautiful. And I'm so, and I long, I long for the, I, I, I have, I love that too. Yes, I absolutely love that. And it's off, it's funny because people often say to me and like, you know, the grocery store, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. I'm like, I know. <laughs> <That's my response. laughs> but also I have so much sorrow for little Christina, <laughs> who in my mid-20s, according to our white patriarchal standards, was far more beautiful than I am now, who didn't know it, you know, just didn't know it. And I was like, heart-stoppingly beautiful. (laughs) And so I feel so much grief that I carry about that, but I'm glad that I found the truth eventually. And yeah, it's something that I've been able to really just hold on to. I mean, it doesn't hurt to to come to France every once in a while and see these amazing, beautiful images of the divine and be reminded that I'm just like them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this leads me to another question before we get into the Black Madonnas themselves. I'm wondering, so you're the declarative title of the book, God is a Black Woman, which again, I love because one of the reasons is because it just forces a reckoning. Like when you hear it, right? I I love that. I love the boldness of it. But what would you say to, for example, a white woman. You talk about that on one hand, the Black Madonna is the mother of all, and she affirms the humanity and the divinity within all human beings. She's not exclusive the way white male God is in her love and her acceptance. But on the other hand, it's really important that she is Black, and there is a special relationship between her and Black women being a Black woman. That's really important, too. There are some white women who have kind of appropriated the Black Madonna in ways that make me feel uncomfortable. Kind of. <laughs> it's like rampant. <laughs> okay. okay, yes. Let's, let's talk about that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... Okay, so on the one hand, like she can handle herself and I don't need to be policing how anybody talks about the Black Madonna. On so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think we've been missing a Black perspective on the Black Madonna. <laughs> and I think that's actually really important. And Bell Hooks, the great Black feminist writer and just everything, ancestor, mother, saint wrote in 2005 that it's really, really, really a shame that black, 
Black people, particularly African Americans, haven't reclaimed the Black Madonna because she's such a powerful icon of resistance against anti-Blackness and particularly massage noir, which is anti-Blackness directed at Black women. And I think there's something really powerful about the Black Madonna's ability to transform us. And I don't just mean Black people. I think our entire world is is laboring under white supremacy and it harms all of us. And when I hear and see white women teaching on the Black Madonna and frankly making a lot of money off those teachings and their their way of talking about her is so closely resembling the way mammies have existed in our society. She's this warm, benevolent, big-bosomed, loving source, resource, who's always available to us and always welcoming to us. And, you know, it's just like, gosh, I feel like I'm watching, what's that movie? The Help. You know what I mean? Where it's like, it's this like white, this white family that is completely using a black woman just for what she can do for them. Like she literally exists just for them and to serve them. And to me, that just feels like more white male God. There's something about the black Madonna that should be uncomfortable. And there's something about the black Madonna that should be inconvenient to white people. (laughs) And that doesn't take away from any of her amazing maternal healing welcoming, affirming characteristics, but she wants to heal us of white supremacy, all of us, right? She healed, she's been healing me of white supremacy, even in the way she's been healing me in my relationship to my body. She wants to heal all of us of our white supremacy. And so part of that means recognizing that she's not your mammy. And that actually there's some accountability And if you want to be in relationship with her as a white person, there's some accountability. That's a part of that. Mm -hmm. How do you claim a devotion to the Black Madonna as a white person? How do you claim that devotion? What does that look like in terms of your integrity as a white person? And we often see this like just obsession with the Black Madonna without any actions that are in line with reparations, that are in line with solidarity with Black women, with Black trans women. And so I think what she's inviting white people into is bringing their justice into alignment with their so-called spirituality. Mm. And she's all of those things. And I think American society in particular has been accustomed to breaking Black women down into pieces that feel consumable. So this, per, you know, like, like the mammy, for example, she's so much more than a mammy, but they don't, they don't even recognize her as like a mother to her own kids or like someone who has feelings or someone who has needs or, you know, and, and I think that pattern needs to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because I've had so many conversations with white women about this book. And they've said, well, I, I, I really, really liked the book, but I really didn't like the chapters 
that were really about your blackness because they didn't speak to me as much. And I was like, yeah, you're asking me to be a mammy right now. You're asking me to contort my story as a black woman into something that nourishes your white body. Mm -hmm. You're literally asking me to be a mammy right now. I am all of me, not just the part of me that feels comfortable and easy for you to digest. And I think that's what the Black Madonna is inviting us all into. Mm-hmm. And she's like this, she's so, I mean, if we open to that, like in every way that I've opened to her sharp edge towards justice, I have just been cleansed. Has it felt cute? Not always, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's felt life-giving, like surgery. <laughs> yeah. Yay, you just saved my life. I got I got a recovery period here, but I'm going to live now, <laughs> which is better than not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you talked about that. I, it sounds like for white people, and again, people who are listening who are going to read the book, it sounds like the Black Madonna is inviting especially white people people to do work. It is a different relationship. It's a different invitation. So thank you for that, Christina. That was so important. So important to hear. So let's talk about the Black Madonna a little bit more. We haven't really talked about these. <laughs> there, there are many, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the history? Yeah, I'm still learning myself because I probably just wasn't introduced to the Black Madonna until like not even t- like less than 10 years ago, but yeah, you know, there, there are probably, it's uh, so hard to know, but there are probably about 450 known black Madonnas around the world. Um, and these are like, you know, statues or really important like icons that are around, you know, s- s- kind of seen as shrines around the world. The region I'm in in France, central France, it has a a large cluster of them because this is a super, super old inhabited part of the world and people have been living in this part, in this part of France for thousands and thousands of years. And so they were, the pre-Roman people were pagans and worshipped, you know, all sorts of like wonderful pagan deities like Black Artemis, Ephesus and Isis and Chabele, et cetera, all these dark goddesses. And when the Catholic Church came here to France and colonized this whole region and tried to suppress that goddess worship, it sort of just was carried on in the form of the Black Madonna here in France. So there's a reason why there are a lot of Black Madonnas in France. So out of the 450 around the world, a little over 100 are here in France and about like 40 are in this little region that I'm in right now. So this is sort of like a hot spot. And they're, they're often around like volcanoes. So earlier this, or in 2022, I was in Southern Italy with Alessandra Belloni, who's a wonderful Black Madonna teacher. And she's, her, her focus is on the Southern Italian Black Madonnas and that whole area is, they're all right there where Mount Vesuvius is. <laughs> so the volcanic activity in, in the same region, it, the same is true here. I'm surrounded by a chain of like 40 something um, volcanic mountains. Hmm. And so you often see these super sacred sites being built up in these volcanic regions where the earth is like especially active. And so it's not surprising that there are a lot of Black Madonnas here or in Southern Italy as well. And basically, you know, they're, 
yeah, they go back much deeper than the Catholic Church, but nowadays they're they're mostly associated with the Catholic Church. The Anglican Church has a couple of Black Madonnas, and some Eastern Orthodox churches venerate the Black Madonna, but for the most part, they're found in Catholic churches or Catholic pilgrimage sites. There are a ton of them on the Camino, and so you know people can visit them as they're walking the Camino in France and Spain. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, a lot of them are, you know, a lot of the ones here in this part of France are are pretty old. Martial, who was one of the, you know, historically one of the Jesus's 72 disciples, supposedly came to this region of France pretty soon after Jesus's death and brought with him some Black Madonnas. And so there are a few in this region that supposedly date back to him. There are also a few that, according to legend, were carved by Luke of the of the gospel of luke so they've been around for a while some were brought back from the crusades and so there you know a lot of that came around like the year 1000 in or like the 11th and 12th centuries and i one of the things i love about the black madonna in in addition to just the fact that like i can stand before this like incredible icon of resistance as bell hook says and affirm that i am sacred too is their art, you know, and I think that art is such a powerful stimulator of my spiritual imagination. White male God infected my spiritual imagination in a large part through art, right? Movies, going to museums, going to churches and seeing these depictions of a white Jesus. So it's really powerful to see how different artists over time have sculpted these Black Madonnas from lots of different materials, lots of different time periods, different, I mean, they all have different stances, they have different looks in their eyes, they have different stories. In my book, I say they're kind of like Marvel superheroes, they all have their own origin stories, you know, Mm -hmm. so some of them were supposedly just appeared in the forest and others were lovingly kind of commissioned by a community like 1500 years ago. And then after they were commissioned, all of a sudden miracles started being associated with them. And so, but it's just really fun to go and particularly in this region of France and I'm in the Auvergne region which is like the heart of central France they call it deep deep France like the deep south just like super French super old timey and they like the the black madonna's here like I mean there's one literally in the building next door next to me because I'm staying in a on an apartment building right next to the the big cathedral the big gothic 12th century cathedral here and there's a black madonna there our lady of the good death and she is Romanesque and has, yeah, it's just super dark skinned, um, looks like she like looks like she could be a woman on a plantation in terms of she has very African features and really dark, dark chocolate skin. And then just the three minute walk down the street, there's the Black Madonna of the port and she's in like an, a cool basilica and she is like you know, 12 inches tall, this like almost miniature Black Madonna. And she's in these like flowing robes and looks a lot more like a Renaissance woman. (laughs) And so just like these, you know, they're just from like one to the other, they look vastly different and kind of tell a really different story about how the divine shows up in the world. And so I love the invitation I love the fact that they are art and because art is open to interpretation. And to me, that really empowers my spiritual imagination because I can walk up to them and ask myself, what is she saying? 
And that was something that I never felt like I could do with white male God. White male God always was out there like declaring things, mm-hmm. <laughs> proclaiming things to me. And I feel like there's something about the Black Madonna and just really about the sacred feminine in general that's just really interested in collaborating with us in how we experience her. And one of my favorite things about the Black Madonna is that there are tens of thousands of known names of the Black Madonna. And communities call her different things. And even one Black Madonna might have four or five official names (laughs) because the names are based on how people have experienced her. So she might be like the princess of peace or the queen of peace, or she might be slave mama, or she might be our lady of the sick, or she might be, you know, and what's fascinating is there's this fourth century Eastern Orthodox prayer that people have been praying forever and ever and ever to the Black Madonna, to the sacred Black feminine. And within it, there are like the whole prayer, it takes like 35 minutes to pray. And within it, there are just like, you know, hundreds of different names because it's mostly like a litany of names that they're just honoring wow. her. And one of them is the enclosure of the God whom nothing can enclose. Mm, <laughs> I love it. The enclosure of the God whom nothing can enclose. And yet like the, the next line will be our milk and honey you know, Mm -hmm. so something very intimate. And um, so something, so, you know, it'll be something super transcendent and it'll go straight to the intimate and the embodied. And and I love that. Like she's inviting us to name her (laughs) based on how we experience her. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because your names for the Black Madonna made me (laughs) laugh out loud. I love them so much. And so that's fun to hear that that's part of a broader tradition of like inviting. So. Can yeah, I didn't please... know that when I started naming her. Oh, you didn't? But it just, it just, no, I didn't. I just, I just, it just felt empowering to me. You know, I was in those, I was in standing before them and this was on my, you know, on this initial pilgrimage in 2018, I had walked 400 miles to visit all these 18 different black Madonnas. So usually it's like, I, by the time I got, got to them, I had walked the whole day and was super in my body and super present, you know, finally had gotten out of my head. <laughs> and so these, this, the names just came out of this sort of experience. So it was really fun then to come back home, do more research and realize that this is something that, yeah, she, she invites us into. And maybe there was like a, maybe that's what I felt, you know, like I was like a, like an anointing or a permission or like a consent, you know, but yeah, that's, it's so totally part of like, she's, She's so relational, right? She's so different than Jehovah, the God that I grew up with, who shows up on Mount Sinai and and throws down tablets of proclamations and commandments. You know, she's she's like, let's be together and let's have some accountability and relationship together, and let's 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 co let's let's participate together. Let's collaborate on what this relationship is going to look like. And I love that. Yeah. So like, you know, I met she whose thick thighs save lives, our lady of the side eye, she who loves by letting go. Yeah. Just so our, you know, she who cherishes our hot mess, who's only about a 30 minute train ride for me right now. Um, And I'm hoping to go see her before I leave. But yeah, you know, it's just so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Can you... As we wrap up that actually, I would love to maybe close out the episode by hearing about one of them who might have 
I mean, I know you have tons of favorites. It would be, so I'm not asking you uh, to do your definitive yeah. favorite, but like a special <laughs> experience that you've had with one of them, name which one it was and what was a special experience for you. Yeah, you know, I'll say so last week, I, I went to Lyon to spend the day with a friend. And there's there's some wonderful black Madonna's in, in Lyon as well that, that aren't in my book, but are definitely worth looking up and reading about. But on my way home from Lyon, I was a two and a half hour train ride. I got some really, 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 really painful news about a loved one who's mm. just quite sick. And I'm not sure what's going to happen. And I was just on the train. I was so grateful to be on the train at night in this sort of meditative space moving through and I couldn't see them, but I had in the morning seen them. So I knew I was moving through these, these volcanic mountains that had, that had been known to be sacred for thousands of years. Right. And the, this area was actually called Namasos, which means the sacred forest by the, by the pre-Roman Gales who lived here. And so I was just like, okay, holding this grief and this is someone who I feel has done a lot of work on their part to release me to the Black Madonna and to release some control that they had over me. It, it, and some of that work might not have been conscious, but it's happened. And I'm really grateful for that. And I was just sort of thinking about my own care for them and the distress that I was carrying around this illness and just the uncertainty about what will happen. And it's like, I felt the Black Madonna speak to me, you know, they, they relinquished you to me. Can you relinquish them to me? Hmm. And I just started to cry and I realized that, you know, this is a grief that I don't have to hold on to. And this is like an uncertainty that I can share with her. And I looked up and the train at that moment was passing through Vichy, had just stopped. It, it was because the Vichy stop was on the way home to where I am. And Vichy is where Our Lady of the Sick, who I nicknamed mm-hmm. She Who Cherishes Our Hot Mess. Mm-hmm. Um, Vichy is where Our Lady of the Sick lives. And I just thought, oh my gosh, what a powerful reminder that she's Our Lady of the Sick. I can absolutely relinquish this person to her. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what she's for. That's why she came to this region. And I feel like that's what I love so much about, you know, the Black Madonna in particular, but just Marian shrines in general, that they, they are, they are, there are these particular gifts that they offer us and they vary based on the, the shrine, right? They vary based on, and, and in that moment, I needed to know that Our Lady of the Sick was holding my beloved mm. and that I could I could let go in a way. And I just felt so much more free. And of course, the grief and the sorrow is still there, but not in a way that I feel responsible for it or, or weighed down, if that makes sense. You know, I feel so much more accompanied and who knows what will happen, but I know that she who cherishes our hot mess. And this is also, it's, you know, it's a person who's sick and also a hot mess of a relationship, but all the, it's complicated, right? Like so many of our relationships are, she's holding it all and she's present to it. And yeah, that's just like literally last week, (laughs) a day in the life. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. That's that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Mm. 
Well, and thank you for this conversation. Thank you for writing this book. I'm so grateful I found the book and and so grateful to be connected with you. I I just admire your work. I think it's really critical and I learned so very much. So again, I really recommend to listeners that you purchase the book and read it. And we'll also have images of the Black Madonnas on our website so that listeners can see because it's really powerful. You have the images of the the statues in the book and it's amazing to see them. So we'll have those on the website as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yes. So Dr. Christina Cleveland, thank you so much for being here today. Just thank you. It's just such a joy to connect and thank you for having me. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.